Well, it's good to have you here today, and I'm glad to have uh, many others joining us live now on the web, or maybe you're catching this later in the week in an archived form, but uh, either way, we're always really glad to have you take part in worship in that way uh, with Freedom Church. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 17. I hope you've got your Bibles. I'll invite you to go ahead and be turning there with me. Now, we're in the the third week of a series entitled Distinctly Christian, where we've been talking about the fact that it's really easy to look around us and observe that the culture in general has been drifting further and further, at least Western culture, away from God and away from what the Scriptures reveal about how we ought to be living our lives, what our ethics uh, should look like, what relationships should look like, and how as the culture has drifted, you would have expected that... Christians would stand out and be that much easier to recognize, but it hasn't been the case that it seems like it's getting harder and harder to recognize who the Christians are in a culture that doesn't look very Christian. And so we've been in this series talking about what is it that should really define us that says, hey, we live distinctly Christian lives that look different. And so two weeks ago when we started out, we saw from the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, That the beginning point of being distinctly Christian is that you must belong to Christ through a personal relationship that is built around love and a commitment to obey what he says. And that that doesn't look like a life just filled with religious activity, that that doesn't save anyone, that it's not about just professing with your mouth all the time, oh yeah, I love Jesus, he's my Lord, that it is a life that is really built around knowing Jesus and obeying what Jesus says and what his word says. And then last week we looked at one of the really tough passages of the New Testament, Luke 14, where Jesus said you had better count the cost. This is going to be a costly thing for you to follow me. And the thing that's going to be necessary is... Jesus says, you've got to love me more than your mom and your dad, your husband, your wife, your siblings, and your kids. You've got to love me above everything else. Because if you aren't willing to give up everything to follow me, you're of no use in the kingdom. You can't belong to the kingdom. So there's this tremendous commitment that is required of putting Jesus ahead of everyone and everything else if we're going to live distinctly Christian lives. And so you may have felt like your toes got stepped on in the last couple of weeks because the words of Jesus are pretty tough at times, aren't they? You ever feel a little bruised when you draw close to Jesus in in the Gospels? Uh, It's an incredibly high standard that he calls us to. Well, today you may not feel quite as bruised by the words of Jesus. In fact, I hope today you're going to find some encouragement and some very practical help. I, I love that about our faith. I love that about the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. It is intensely practical. And what we're going to read today, though it's a very short passage, it's extremely practical. And we're going to see today in what Jesus says, we're going to find some of the keys that should make Christians the very best people in the world at doing relationships. We ought to be the best at love relationships of anybody on the planet, whether it's romantic relationships or close friendships or family relationships. And the four verses we're going to look at today are a good reminder of what the core of Christianity is about and about how we're supposed to do relationships. We begin in Luke 17, verse 1, and I'll simply set the stage by saying, apparently it looks like what Matthew records in Matthew 18 is a longer account, a more detailed account, of the same encounter that we're going to read about. And so you'll hear me share some things along the way, that, and we'll be looking back at times at some of the passages in a more expanded form in Matthew 18. But Matthew gives us the setting for what we're about to read. And it's one of those typical moments where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Okay, we want to know, who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's a guy question. 
I mean, it, it's such an arrogant question, but it's such a guy question, too. We want to be significant. We don't just want to be in the kingdom. We want to know who is the biggest bad boy in the kingdom. Tell us which one it is. And that is, that's a question that only a group of 12 guys would ask. It, ladies, don't look down on us. If you had been there, if it had been a group of women, y'all would have said, Jesus, who's your bestie? Who's your best friend? You know, we, we want to know who's greatest because we're about significance. You want to know who's the best friend because you're about relationships. We, we all would want to know something like that. So who's the greatest? And Jesus responded by calling a little child to get right in the middle of the pack. He sets a child in the middle of the circle and he says, whoever wants to be great has to become like this little child. Now, he's talking to the twelve. He's not talking to, like, just lost pagans out there. And to the twelve, he says, And unless every one of you become like this little child, unless you humble yourself like this child, you will not get into the kingdom. Wow. Now, again... I grew up a Baptist kid who got dunked when I was seven years old, made my decision, shook the pastor's hand, prayed to receive Jesus, and have been, you know, spent most of my life trying to hold on to the doctrine of eternal security. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized when I was seven, so I'm good to go. And I'm not going too far down this road, but I just want to say the words of Jesus in moments like this don't do much to reinforce that doctrine for me. They don't do much to make me feel okay about, okay, because I got dunked when I was seven, I must be okay. I mean, Jesus is looking at his closest followers and saying, you're not going to get in unless you live your life humbled like this little child. And he says, I'll tell you, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who becomes like this little child. And whoever, by the way, receives this little child receives me. Okay, that's the background. That's what he's just said. And from that, we pick up in Luke 17, where Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. And everybody said, ain't that the truth? Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. We're going to have fun unpacking that. And then Jesus says, one of the heaviest, strongest things that he ever speaks in the Gospels. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. It makes more sense, doesn't it, when you realize he's called a child into the middle of the crowd. And he says, you know what? Stuff that causes people to sin, it happens to everybody. But woe to the one who causes that to happen. Woe to the one who brings it on somebody else. And I'm telling you, for the one who would cause a little one like this to be drawn into your sin, I'd rather a millstone be tied around your neck and th you be thrown into the sea than be able to do that. Jesus takes this stuff pretty seriously, doesn't he? And he says, so watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Now in four little verses, 
Jesus has said four really important things that are at the heart of our Christian faith and that really do define in a big way how we do relationships and, and how we should look at ourselves and look at the people around us and relate to them. And so I want to take just a little bit of time to unpack the four things that Jesus has said. And the first one is really practical because the thing that he's pointing out on the front end is that we each have our own issues to deal with. Amen? Yeah, that was, that was pretty weak. We all have got our own junk to deal with, don't we? Yes, we do. All of us do. And Jesus is telling us that when he says to his disciples, things that make people fall into sin are bound to happen. I don't know about you, but something about the way that Jesus said that just lets me take a little bit of a, of a, a breath, a little sigh of relief in that not that it's all okay that we all get tangled up in sin but just that jesus doesn't go and shame on you i cannot believe you do that i mean the sinless son of god could say that couldn't he it's not like he's going light on sin but jesus is simply acknowledging look i get it everybody's going to be sucked into it everybody gets put in situations where you make the wrong choice you you get in with the wrong crowd you just do the wrong thing he said it happens to everybody. Jesus understood that's why he was here. He didn't come to shake a finger at us and say, shame on you, you should have done better. What's the point of that? John 3.17 said Jesus didn't come in the world to condemn the world. He came into the world so that through him we could be saved. And Jesus is saying, I get it, everybody's tangled up in something. I'm reminded of the words of, of Hebrews 5.15 where the writer says, speaking of Jesus as our high priest, the one who's our go-between between us and God the Father. And he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. How amazing is that thought? That Jesus... In becoming our high priest, the one who would pave the way for us to be made right with God, that he truly can sympathize with our struggles. Do you ever feel sort of the opposite of that? Like when Jesus looks at your life, that he just wants to go, I cannot believe you. You are so pathetic. I cannot understand why you do the things that you do. Isn't there a part of you that feels like that must be how God looks at you? Or am I the only one that ever feels that way? The writer of Hebrews says that's not how Jesus responds. It says that he is able to sympathize. He's not making excuses for it, But he is able to sympathize with our sins, our failures, our rotten choices. Why? Because he became fully human and he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. How wild is that to consider? That the sinless son of God, when he was on earth... When people around him did things that would tick any of us off, that he was so tempted to just want to blow up and tell them what they needed to be told. You know what I mean. He was so tempted to lose his temper in moments. He didn't do it, but oh, he was tempted to. When Jesus saw a curvaceous, good-looking woman, he was tempted to let his thoughts go places that they shouldn't go. That feels a little uncomfortable even thinking about that, doesn't it? That Jesus, the Son of God, was tempted to have inappropriate thoughts. Doesn't mean that he had them, but he was tempted to let his thoughts go there. 
If he wasn't, then the writer of Hebrews is lying or exaggerating because he says Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. That's why he's able to sympathize. He's able to understand. He didn't compromise, but he understands how much sin draws us in and how much the world pushes us in that direction. All of us have been sucked in and we all have our own stuff to deal with. John said, if we claim to have no sin... We're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. We pretty much all get this, don't we? You know, I've talked to a lot of people about this and tried to share the gospel with a lot of people. And in all the years that I've done that, I can only remember bumping into one person who was without sin. And it wasn't Jesus, by the way. It was just a guy who, his response was, he's never sinned. So he didn't need Jesus. So he didn't get Jesus that day. But other than that one fellow I bumped in two years ago who had never sinned, the rest of us have messed up. And that's what John is saying. And by the way, John's telling that guy he's a fool. That's what he says. You're fooling yourself. He goes on to say, but if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. He's saying it's, you get washed clean in the deal. None of it sticks to you when you confess and agree with God. And then... If you skip down to the, a couple of verses down, to the beginning of chapter 2, I love the balance in what John says here. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. It's a great reminder. And if you read all of 1 John, you will be reminded that your obedience matters. A follower of Jesus can't just stay in the same old garbage over and over and over and act like it doesn't matter. That a believer will not do that. He says, so I'm writing to you so that you will not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. That's a great balance, isn't it? That he's saying obedience matters and we should do everything in our power to obey God. But when you don't, and there are times that you won't, when you don't remember this, we have an advocate. We, we have a, an attorney, so to speak. Somebody who is pleading our case before the Father. And he is the one who is truly righteous. It's Jesus. Before we can say the other things that Jesus said in the verses that follow, we've got to begin by realizing we all have got junk that we've got to deal with. And we're all working through that. And it's interesting, one of the things that you get to do as a pastor is you wind up talking over the years to a lot of different people about our different issues that we struggle with. And it does give you, I guess it's a little bit like being a counselor uh, in, in a secular setting. It gives you a bit of a unique perspective to realize just how true this first point is that everybody has got something major that they're dealing with. But the quirk in that is how many of us feel like I'm the only one in the room who's really messed up. I can't let anybody else know just what's going on with me because if anybody else knew what my deal is, oh, nobody would look at me the same and, and they'd really not want to be my friend because I'm the one who's so messed up here. It's what's so cool and enjoyable about Celebrate Recovery. Is this a safe environment where everybody goes, I admit it, by walking in the door, I admit that I'm messed up and I've got some significant stuff that I need help with. And there's such freedom in that place where everybody is acknowledging what's true of all of us. That we've all got our issues to deal with. Now, when you think about how are you going to deal with your issues, there are four different things that come to mind as far as ways that we deal with our issues. And the first one is we're prone to either 
pretend that we don't have the problem, to cover it up, or just ignore it. And, and we're pretty good at that about some things, aren't we? You know, uh, the person who's got a real problem with anger will be quick to tell you sometimes, I don't have an anger problem, I have a problem with stupid people. My problem is not my anger, my problem is stupid people. Do you hear the deception in that? The person who says, I don't have a lust problem. I just have a great appreciation for what God has created. I just love the human body. Yeah, that's called self-deception. We can cover up our problem. We can ignore it. We can pretend that it doesn't exist. That doesn't help anybody. A second way that we can try and deal with our own stuff is to either defend it or flaunt it. In other words, I'm just going to look at you whenever you ever mention something that's anywhere close to my issue and say, well, who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? God made me the way that I am. Don't tell me this is wrong. If there's a problem, take up your problem with the one who created me because God made me this way. God made me the way that I am. So you can't tell me that this is wrong if God made me this way. Once again, denial. And, you know, we can take that so far to the point that that we'll just flaunt it. And and it really is kind of crazy the ways that believers will flaunt their stuff. How believers will flaunt the fact that, that they're mad and carrying unforgiveness. Or flaunt the fact that whatever, you know, that they have an addiction or that they're into alcohol or whatever the thing is. There are times where we'll try and compensate For the conviction that we feel over our stuff by just being so loud and proud and making a big joke out of it or defending it. So we can ignore it or hide it. We can flaunt it or defend it. A third thing people will try and do in dealing with their stuff is we're going to fix it ourselves with self-help, right? It's a very popular thing in American culture in recent decades. You know, everybody's got self-help books and self-help seminars and, and we've got all kinds of support groups. And don't get me wrong, I mean... The help that's out there, a lot of it can be good. It can be helpful. Sometimes counselors can be helpful. Sometimes you know, things like AA can be very helpful. But the problem is when that's all that we're doing is self-help. You won't overcome your biggest struggles through self-help. You can read all the books in the world on anger management. You can, you can go to every class and support group. And you won't conquer your biggest struggle through self-help. Well, the Scripture presents a fourth way of dealing with your biggest issues. And it's very straightforward. That you confess it and you repent of it. Now, that doesn't instantly fix everything, but it certainly does put us on the right footing. When we confess it, we agree with God about it and immediately get forgiveness for it. And when we repent of it, it doesn't mean that we're suddenly free of the problem, typically. But it means that we have a change of heart that says, God, I want to do what pleases you. I'm asking you for the help that comes from you, for the power now to do the right thing. And I'm just telling you, if I do mess up in that area again, I'm going to be quick to turn to you and to agree with you and confess that and commit myself again to getting back on course. And the things that become for us... The biggest issues to overcome, sometimes they're the ones that we don't talk about in church very often because we don't even think they're a big deal. And yet for some of us, they're a huge deal. And they're the kinds of things that you don't get over it the first time that you confess it and the first time you repent of it. 
I mean, think about the ones we don't talk about a lot, and yet they become very pervasive issues for us. Things like gluttony. Oh, we don't talk about it in the church today, do we? Not in a culture where two-thirds of us are overweight or obese. I mean, we don't want to talk about gluttony, and yet the Scriptures talk about it. Or gossip. Well, everybody does it, don't they? And yet the Scriptures hammer it. How about sloth? Laziness. Nobody preaches on laziness today, and yet the Scriptures come down so harshly about the issue of, of being slothful. And these are the kinds of things that if that's a major heart issue for you, it doesn't get fixed in a moment of time, does it? It's the kind of thing that you have to agree with God and you wind up needing to repent again and again when the Holy Spirit reminds you in that situation, that same old thing came back to the surface. You didn't make the right choice. You didn't do the right thing. So what do you do? You continue to repent. You continue to confess it to God and allow Him to gradually change you over time. The truth of the matter is we've all got something that we're dealing with. The only difference among us is what the name of it is and how much of a stigma we've attached to it. Because some of the things that the Scriptures come down on really hard, our culture church culture just hardly will ever even speak of because it seems so minor compared to the ones that we've called the big sins. But the truth is, we all have our own issues to deal with. Jesus said in Matthew 7, this is a passage we're going to return to a couple of times. This is still in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at, we've been looking at in small group. He says, why then do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own eye? How dare you say to your brother, please let me take that speck out of your eye when you have a log in your own eye. Don't you just love how direct Jesus is about this? He's just said, you know, don't run around judging everybody. Be careful that you don't fall into the trap of doing that because you're prone to want to run around picking out the little things in other people's lives and ignore this big thing that's in your own eye. And he uses hyperbole to say, you know, it's, it's like you've got a log in your eye when you're wanting to point out the speck in other people's eyes. And he says, that doesn't make any sense. You're going to have to deal with that thing that's in your own eye, that's in, in your own life, if you're going to be of any use to anybody else. Well, if you're willing to do this, it's going to cultivate a couple of things that are going to make you better at relationships, at better at doing the, the next couple of things that we're going to talk about. First of all, recognizing your own issues creates real humility, doesn't it? When you get a good look at the junk that's in your own eye, that's in your own heart and mind, when you realize that when I have to deal with how you hurt me or how you fail God or how you mess up, if I first can see very clearly my own failures... That's going to help me a great deal. And oh, by the way, in dealing with our own stuff, one of the things that keeps us at a healthy place and that also helps us to stay humble is to practice what James said in James 5.16 when he says about this issue of confession, confess your faults also one to another and pray for each other so that you can be healed. Protestants, we're not very good at this, are we? It's almost like this is a new idea for Protestants and yet it's not new at all. You know, we confess our sins to God for forgiveness, but we confess our sins to one another for healing. Do you get the difference? 
We need to be forgiven. That's a big deal. But we need to get right. We need to get over it. We need to actually change the behavior. And so confessing to God and then confessing to someone that we can trust so that we begin to make a change. As There's, there's healing that takes place when you get honest with a, a faithful, trusted person who's going to pray for you and encourage you and maybe even help you stay accountable for what you're doing in that regard. And when you do that, boy, over time, that creates some humility when you're talking openly about your own stuff. And that then positions us to be able to do the other things that Jesus is going to mention here. Which brings us to the second principle that Jesus points out, and that is that we must be very careful in our own junk that we never lead others into sin. Jesus had said things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen. But how terrible it is. For the person through whom they happen, it would be better for them to be thrown into a lake with a large stone hung around his neck than to cause one of these little ones to trip and to fall into sin. Watch yourselves. He says that about the millstone. In Jesus' day, when they would grind grain, they would use a device where there were two 18-inch stones. They were in the shape of a wheel. They'd be several inches thick. And they would put the the grain between these two 18-inch Stones, and of course, one of them would be attached to a a, a pole and a, a donkey or animal tied to that, and they you know spin it around and and grind with that. But if you can imagine an eighteen inch stone wheel several inches thick, I mean how much would that weigh? It would be immensely heavy, and if you could imagine strapping that around somebody like a giant necklace and then tossing them in the bay and say, "You know it's time for your swimming lesson, you know they're going straight to the bottom with that tied around their neck, and Jesus said. Look, stuff that draws people into sin, that happens to everybody. That's a weighty enough issue. But Jesus says, let me tell you what the really weighty matter is. The thing that I really come down on is, don't you dare let your own struggles become an excuse for leading somebody else into sin. And he gets really specific in pointing out the child among them. And he says, anybody who would lead a little one like this in the wrong direction, who would cause them to stumble, who would cause them to lose faith, it'd be better if today we just took them out in the middle of the lake and threw them in with that stone tied to their neck than to let them do this to a child. This is a weighty matter. Boy, Jesus takes it really seriously, doesn't he? He just takes it to a whole other level. It's not like he's being soft on our sin, but he's realizing everybody's going to struggle with something. This is going to be what you have to deal with in your own life. And I understand that. But he says there is no excuse for letting your struggle become a doorway for leading others, especially little ones, into sin. And it is simply a straightforward reminder. Everybody... Everybody in this room, everybody watching and listening online right now has people. We all have people who are watching us and who are learning from us and who are following our example. And the simple question I want to ask you today is, what are they learning from you? What is your example teaching them? That doesn't mean you're going to live morally perfect before them or that you need to pretend like you're perfect. But what is your example teaching them? By your example, are you teaching them that there is a God and that you know Him, that you've placed your trust in Him, and that He is a loving and redeeming God, and that you can depend on Him? Or are you teaching those who watch you that you're independent, that you're strong, that you're a self-made person? What are your actions and your words teaching others?
I mean, we all have weak moments. We all have moments where we don't understand what God's doing, where we don't understand our own lives, where we don't understand our own selves. But what you say and do in those moments can either build the faith of others or it can lead others astray. Most of you know that uh, many of us had a good friend pass away a couple of weeks ago, Mitch Briggs. And uh, Mitch was diagnosed six months ago with, I mean, Mitch was a young man, extremely healthy, godly man, loved his wife, heavily involved in his church, and just suddenly started having bad headaches. And within a week or two was diagnosed with uh, glioblastoma and this terrible brain tumor ran the course that the doctors predicted, and, and within six months, he passed away. But you, you learn so much when you watch someone go through a season like that, because especially something like a brain tumor and what it robs you of so quickly. And yet throughout that entire process, there was never a moment where Mitch threw a fit or declared God to be cruel and unkind and unfaithful. And don't get me wrong. I'm not judging people who are in that kind of life and death situation. Who in their own private moments with God ask some hard questions and go through anger and, and confusion. I'm not judging anybody for that. But I'm just saying, man, it tells us so much about where a person really is. When you watch them be the one that's looking death in the face. And through that whole thing can say, you know what, God is still good. I don't understand, but I do know this. God is good, He is faithful, and He will see me through this. And it wasn't somebody living in in denial. He was saying, whether I'm healed physically or whether I'm healed by being taken home to heaven, I just know that God is good. And I'm telling you, to watch somebody like that go through an experience like that, it's such a huge encouragement. I spent time this week just sitting with Jimmy King. Many of you know that uh, Mr. King, who has always been so faithful to sit right right there next to where Sherry's seated today, and who ALS is ravaging his body now. And he is at that, that terrible place where he can't speak, he can't swallow, he's lost 40-something pounds now, and um, barring a miracle, there won't be any better days ahead. He's refusing a feeding tube and... And just at a terrible place. And the only way left that he can communicate is he has enough of a use of one hand that he can slowly write out what he wants to say. And to just sit there with him this week and to hear him with his written words just declare that it's okay. That he knows that he's right with God and he knows that God is faithful And that if God doesn't heal him here on earth, that he is just ready for God to take him home. He doesn't, you know, I'm not wanting anybody to do anything great for me. I've had a long life. God's been good to me. And I can trust God through this. And I'm just thinking, man, you're setting an example for the rest of us to follow. To trust in the faithfulness of God. I see a faith that is real. You know, it's easy when everything's going well and we've got plenty of money in the bank and everybody in our family's healthy. It's easy to go, God is good. Ain't God good? Oh, yes. Bless the Lord, brother. God is good. Yeah. What are you going to say on the day when it's you or your loved one who's diagnosed with a terminal illness? Will we still declare the goodness of God? Those moments tell everybody around us whether we have a real living faith in a God who is faithful.
too many times when it's our turn to face difficult circumstances. Too many times people who've declared faith in God will get angry and, well, I just don't understand. I don't see how a loving God could do this. I don't know that I want to trust and follow a God who would do this. Only a cruel God would let something like this happen. Well, guess what's happening in moments like that? Not only are we getting a bad attitude, but we are affecting the faith and the outlook of other people around us. And Jesus said in the, the other account of, of this same teaching in Matthew eighteen six, he said, if anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose faith in me. That's a really interesting way of putting it in that passage. If anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose faith in me, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So think about your own life. What is it that the next generation is learning from you? Or maybe it's not the next generation. Maybe it's just somebody who's a step further behind you in life, but they're watching your life. What are they learning from you? Are they learning what really represents a Christian life? Or are they learning from you that stuff matters more than people? That God is good as long as you're healthy and as long as you have a lot of money? Well, you know, what are they learning? Are they learning to be materialistic? Or are they learning that loving others matters most? What are they learning from your example? Jesus said, be very careful never to lead others into sin. And then the third thing that Jesus is driving home, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you before I say it, of the four, probably universally, this is going to be the one that will go down the hardest. This is the one we'll want to push back from. Jesus is saying, we must be willing to confront the sins of those around us. When we've done what we've just said, when we've been willing to address our own issues within the family of faith, we've got to be willing to confront the sins of those around us. Jesus says, now watch yourself. If your brother or sister sins, warn them to stop. That's the contemporary English Bible. The NIV said to rebuke them, that same word in Greek. It means to scold or to command I point that out just to, just to say, Jesus isn't always who we've made him out to be. He is wonderful. He's like no other. He truly is perfect. And yet there are moments where the truth that comes from him, it cuts like a knife. You know, when Paul and some of the other New Testament writers are writing about these same truths... Even when they're being direct, it sounds so mild-mannered compared to Jesus. Because Jesus is starting by saying, you've got to begin by recognizing you're going to get pulled into sin and you're going to have to deal with your own sin and you're going to have to make sure that your sin doesn't draw others into sin, that you're very careful that when you mess up that you don't become a stumbling block for other people. And now he shifts the focus and says, and when others around you that you're close to in the family of faith... When they get sucked into sins, these we're not just talking about just a sin. We're talking about a lifestyle of sin, an ongoing thing that's really destructive for a person. He said, when that happens, you have a responsibility to rebuke them. And I'm just being honest. I wish he had said something different. I wish he had said, you know, you should probably offer them a word of encouragement. Give them a gentle nudge back in the right direction. Let them know that you're praying for them. That all sounds better, doesn't it? Come on. 
Doesn't that feel better? Wouldn't you feel better if Jesus just said, when those around you get into sin, tell them you're praying for them. Wouldn't you be more comfortable with that? You know you would. So would I. And the word that Jesus uses is rebuke them, scold them, command them to do differently. To which we want to go, Jesus, you can pull that off. You're the son of God. You never screwed up. What's our universal response to Jesus' instruction here, by the way? You know what it is. We all want to go, who, me? Who am I to correct anyone else? And Jesus says, you're the right one if you're close to them. If you're a brother or sister to them in the family of faith, you owe it to them. When you see someone being drawn into something that's destructive that they aren't repenting of. That, that's the whole point. If somebody is messes up, but you know they're walking with God and they, they repent and they confess it, you don't have any business saying anything about it. But when you see someone getting sucked into bad choices, bad habits, and they're within the family of faith, Jesus is saying, you have a responsibility. You speak to that. You speak to it with authority. You call them back to a right way of living. And again, Matthew 18, the parallel passage Matthew gives us a little more of the teaching that flowed out of that when Jesus said, if a fellow believer hurts you, I think the NIV says, if a fellow believer sins against you. Now it's becoming personal. It's not just that they've messed up, but they've messed up in a way that hurts you as a part of this deal. Jesus says, go and tell him and work it out between the two of you. And if he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen... Take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. Well, that's just not comfortable at all, is it? Are you following what he's saying here? When somebody around you gets into something that they shouldn't be and they're not repenting of that, and Jesus goes on to say, especially if if it's something that has anything to do with you, but it's not just uniquely that. But he says, you have a responsibility to go to them privately, one-on-one, and you talk to them about that in a redemptive way that is designed to call them to godly living, to get them back on track. But he says, if that doesn't do the trick, and if they push back from that, it's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Who are you to be talking to me about this? You've got your own stuff to deal with. They're right. We do have our own stuff to deal with. But guess what? In that moment, we need to be able to say, but I am dealing with it. When I mess up, I'm confessing it to God, and I'm doing my best to turn away from it, and that's all I'm asking you to do. And if they push you back, Jesus said, you go get one or two friends, people who are solid, who are sound, and you bring them with you, not to gang up on them, but so that your friend can then see through the testimony of two or three different people Look, we're seeing the same thing. And we're all burdened about the same thing. And we're telling you the same thing. You can't ignore this. You've got to deal with this. There probably aren't three people in this room excited about this part of the teaching. This is, I believe, one of the most neglected teachings in modern Christianity. And you know the easiest way for us to write that off is we just go, well, I'm just not a very confrontational person. That's, that's kind of not my deal. And Jesus doesn't give anybody a free pass. And this is part of what is so wrong in the church today and in American culture today. 
I've said it before, I'll say it again today. In any culture that is becoming completely morally bankrupt, the final virtue that they will hold on to every time is the pseudo-virtue of tolerance. I'll say that again. In a culture that is becoming morally bankrupt, the last virtue, when there's only one left, the one last virtue they'll hold on to is tolerance. You know what that looks like, don't you? It looks like America today. Where the one virtue that is universally esteemed is judge not. We have to be tolerant of each other. I won't judge you and you don't judge me. And you Christians especially don't get to judge anybody. Because Jesus said, judge not. The world that doesn't know the Bible knows one verse. Two words. Judge not. Words of Jesus. Which, by the way, they are completely misquoting, taking out of context, as you're about to see. Totally misquoting Jesus. Jesus didn't teach that kind of tolerance. Not at all. In fact, he taught the very reverse of that. And the very verse that everybody wants to quote, Matthew 7, 1, if you read it in context, you've got to read Matthew 7, 1 through 5 to understand what Jesus is saying. And in that teaching, he is telling us to be involved in correcting one another's lives. People want to take a teaching where Jesus is instructing us to do that. They pull two words out of it and say, see, you're never supposed to judge anybody. You're just supposed to tolerate everything. That is not at all the New Testament teaching. It's 180 degrees opposite of the New Testament. And if we, I mean this, we've got to get, if we're serious about being a New Testament church, we're not going to get to play Thomas Jefferson and cut out the portions of the New Testament that we don't like. You know, they said his Bible was full of holes. He, when he'd read a passage he didn't like, Jefferson would, would cut those chunks out and throw them away so that he was left with the parts that he liked in his Bible. Wouldn't it be nice if you could do that? If we could, I'd cut this one out. I'd throw this one away. Because, you see, I've tried to live by this one for a lot of years. And you know what my experience has been? Of all the times that I have ever sought to, to follow this teaching and to speak into a situation, I mean the really hard ones, it's one thing when you speak into stuff at, at the level of, you know what, you have sinned against me. <laughs> you hurt my feelings. We, we all are willing to speak back to that, aren't we, most of us, because, you know, I want to I set you straight when you hurt my feelings. But when we speak into a situation that's not about us personally so much as it is, I just see that you've done something that damages your testimony or it's going to be harmful for your marriage or your family or it's damaging your relationship with God. And it's something that I have a responsibility to talk to you about because I'm your friend and I'm aware of what's going on and I I can see that you're not changing that. In my experience, roughly speaking, about 50% of the time it has been well received And there's been repentance and a real attempt at making a change and getting right with God and and doing what needed to be done. And about 50% of the time, it's been the opposite. And that is total misery. You ever been there and done that? Oh, I mean, I've, I've done that a bunch of times. I've had people who wanted to fight. I've had people just get ugly. I've had people storm out, bow up. You know, who are you to be talking to me? It's not fun. It's never fun. But it's a fundamental part of living out Christian faith. That we talk to each other about how we live and the choices that we make. And that we be willing with a broken heart 
that hungers to see the other person in a healthy place, that we'd be willing to sit down and talk to them about the really hard stuff. The, the very passage that I just alluded to in Matthew 7, where Jesus started by saying, Judge not, <laughs> that's the part everybody quotes. He, what he goes on to say that they don't quote is, he says, Judge not, lest you be judged, for with a standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Oh, that's a serious qualifier. We shouldn't use a standard of judgment that we're not willing to receive in our own lives. Here's our standard of measure. We're all called to be right with God. And when we mess up, we're called to confess it and repent. That's a standard of measure I'm always willing to receive in my life that we all should be. So that's a standard of measure that I can use for all of us. I'm never going to look at you and say, you should never mess up. Well, I can't live by that standard. I don't expect you to. But what you can say to me is... Mark, when you do mess up, and here's an area where you're living out of bounds, we all have have agreed together, we're going to confess it, we're going to seek to make it right with God, we're going to turn from that. That's what you've got to be willing to do. With the standard of measure, it's going to be measured to you. And he says, you know, don't run around looking at the speck in other people's eyes when you haven't addressed the big old chunk of stuff you've got in your own eye. But then he follows that in the next verse by saying, First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. What was his point? We've got to deal with both. We have a responsibility to deal with our stuff, but then to be loving enough to help people with their stuff. And I love the analogy. Jesus uses such simple but powerful analogies of getting something in your eye. Now think about it. Jesus lived in a day when they didn't have mirrors. You know how when you like get a piece of sawdust or a piece of a leaf or, or a bug flies in your eye? You know, he, he talks about the speck and the log. It doesn't feel like a speck, does it, in that moment? It feels like a log. You know, a gnat flies in your eye and you think it's a buzzard in there, don't you? It feels this, about that big. And when you don't have a mirror, what are you immediately saying to whoever's around you? Look in my eye. Can, can you see it? You've got to help me get this thing out because it just drives you crazy, doesn't it? You need the help of a friend. And what do you need for that friend to do in that moment? You need them to move quickly and gently, right? Because when it's something in your eye, you don't want them to just go, well, here, let me get a stick and just root around in there and see if I can run it out. No. You want them to very carefully and gently help you get rid of that. It's a great picture of our major sin issues. They cause real problems. And sometimes we can't get it out on our own. Sometimes we're going to need to enlist the help of somebody else. Can you see what's going on here? All I know is something doesn't feel right. Can you see it? Can you help me get it out? That's a picture of how we need to deal with it. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be direct. I'm going to move quickly. That's how we've got to be with each other. And Jesus says you have a responsibility to do this. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 about this issue. He said, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. He's talking about lost people, people out in the world. It's not our responsibility to judge them, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. Now, that's an important truth. The American church... Portions of it get off track because we want to spend a bunch of time railing against that lost pagan world out there, you know, and and wanting to just preach against that and bash people who are lost sinners for acting like lost sinners. That is the biggest waste of time I can imagine. We act like we're surprised. We're surprised that the lost world acts like, I don't know, the lost world. How do we expect them to act? 
It fits. They do what lost people ought to do. There's only one thing we can do to help them. Help, help them come to know Christ so they can change. He says, don't waste your time trying to correct bad behavior in the lost world. God will deal with that. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Now, he's just spent a whole chapter of this letter confronting the fact that in the Corinthian church, there was a man who was involved in an immoral sexual relationship. It was an ongoing thing, and it had become widely known and widely talked about in the church, and no one was willing to confront it. It had become the biggest joke within the church. Yeah, everybody knows what brother so-and-so has been doing with sister so-and-so, and it ain't good. And it's like, it's a joke. Everybody can talk about it, and nobody does anything about it. And Paul confronts them so up front, and he says, you know, this cannot stand. Here's what you must do the very next time that you are together. And then out of that, he makes a more generalized teaching. He says, look, we don't do that in relation to lost people. We're only talking about exercising this within the family of faith. Now, in this situation... It was an over-the-top deal, and it had progressed to a point that he said, for now, this guy's got to be put out of the church, removed from the fellowship. That's not the beginning point of, of discipline. But you get the idea. He's saying there's a time when you have to be discerning and address that. A final word. Paul gives us a kind of a roadmap for how to do this in Galatians 6 when he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person Back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into temptation yourself. yourself. Share in each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. Be careful when you're going to confront somebody else to pray it through. Until you're at the point that that you're reaching out to them with a broken heart, not an angry heart. A burdened heart, not a condemning heart. And there's a big difference, isn't there? When you think about, if I was the one called in this, how would I want them to confront me? Then the fourth and final thing that Jesus says, and we're done. He teaches that we have got to be willing to repeatedly forgive those who've hurt us. I love the way he keeps pointing the, the light in different directions. Everybody's got their own sin to deal with. Don't let your sin draw others into sin. When other people around you are caught up in sin, here's what you do. And oh, by the way, when they have sinned against you and hurt you, but they repent, here's what you've got to do. You've got to be willing to forgive as often as they repent of that. And he says, if another believer sins, rebuke that person. And then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again, again the words repent, and ask forgiveness, you must forgive them. I said on the front end, Christianity is about as practical as anything could possibly be. Here it is, as practical as it gets. There is nothing that is more Christian than to forgive. Amen? Why? Why is that the most inherently Christian thing there is? That's it. Because we've been forgiven. It's the most Christian thing that we can do to forgive those around us. Where's the most important place for you to practice this? I'll give you a hint. It's where you're going when you get through eating lunch out. (laughs) At your house. In your marriage. With your family. The people who are closest to you are the ones who are going to offend you the most. Who are going to sin against you the most. And to forgive them as often as they repent. And I love this in Matthew 18 again. Peter hears this. And he says in response or asks in response. Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? 
seven times. It's like, okay, Jesus already said seven. So it's like Peter's going, so can we draw the line there? I mean, that's pretty rough. Seven times I've got to forgive somebody? Can we just call it a day at seven? And Jesus responds with that that classic answer when he said, not seven times, but 70 times seven. There's no limit to this, is what he's saying. If someone hurts you, someone offends you, but then they recognize that what they've done is wrong and they ask for forgiveness, he said, you've got to be willing to continue to forgive and to continue to let it go, to put it behind you. Now, I realize, and I don't have time to chase this rabbit for long, but I realize this brings to mind some immediate questions because we can take this out of balance. Are there limits to what Jesus has taught here? And there are extreme situations where there are limits. I'll give you a couple of for instances. The woman who is with an abusive man, and every time he beats her to a pulp, he comes back and he is so sorry, and he asks her to please forgive him. Should she stay with him? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not when this has happened again and again. Why would that be the correct answer? Because within Christianity, we understand that forgiveness is one of the most important ideals that we hold on to, but it is not the only one. Along with forgiveness, other standards that we must judge by are righteousness, justice, the sanctity of human life. And those will trump even a forgiveness in a situation like that. Because you see, when someone is being physically abused, to tell someone that they need to stay in that and be forgiving is to say forgiveness trumps even the sanctity of human life. Forgiveness trumps justice, and it does not. Forgiveness is important. But there's nothing more important than the sanctity of human life and justice. So we have to be thoughtful about these things. It doesn't mean that in every situation where somebody's being abused, where somebody's being raped or mistreated in those kinds of ways, that we just go, oh, no, no, you just should blindly forgive. Begs one other key question. Jesus said, as often as they repent, you should be willing to forgive. That certainly begs the question of us, well, what if they don't repent? Great question. What if the other person doesn't repent? Well, for starters, if it's somebody that you're in an ongoing relationship with and they don't repent of what they've done to you, you've got a problem, period. I mean, it's really an interesting thing because God doesn't forgive sins where there's no repentance, does he? I mean, God forgives when we repent. He, he sets things right as we repent. So what happens when somebody hurts you and they don't, they're not willing to repent of that? Well, there is a rub between you. Period. Now, in extreme situations where somebody doesn't repent, and this is usually more often the case when something like this will happen, when it's a little more of a distant relationship where somebody maybe has hurt you and they've walked out, or they've hurt you but they live at a distance from you, and it's you know time has passed and you realize they're never going to repent, or there's no repentance in sight. They're hard-hearted, or they're you know they're long gone. They may be dead and departed. But you realize they're not going to come back and repent of this. And I'm just doing, I'm so mad because I didn't deserve this. And it did lasting damage. And, and, you know, I don't know if I'll ever fully recover from what they did to me. I have a good reason to be angry. Okay, you do. And yet in that situation, it's important that you forgive for your own benefit. So that you don't continue to be poisoned.
And at that point, it's not about blessing them. It's just about releasing them into God's hands. I don't have to be the one to judge them and to, and to punish them. That's the key. I'm going to let this go. God, you do all the punishing that needs to be done. I'm going to let it go and forgive them because my heart needs to be freed up. Because, oh, by the way, demonic spirits that need to have legal rights to be able to get into your life will use unforgiveness as the most common doorway into a person's life. And when they've come in that doorway, you have no control over what they attack. So letting go and being willing to forgive is critical. But in just typical day-to-day relationships, repentance is an absolutely necessary part of the equation and i'll share this at a real personal level and i hope i'm not in trouble when i get home for sharing this but um it's funny how many times the very thing that i'm going to preach on gets tested that week i'll screw up or i you know i'll be confronted with something that's the very thing that i'm going to preach on and i hate it because life gets harder in those moments had one of those moments this week i screwed up the first of this week I said something that at the time I thought was completely innocent. I didn't intend anything hurtful by it. I, I promise I didn't, I, I wasn't seeking to be judgmental or condescending or, or harsh or anything. I said something that I thought in that moment was completely benign. And I mean, I stepped on my wife's feelings ten ways to Sunday. Hurt her feelings badly. And what's even worse, I had no idea at the time. I I went off and did my own thing for the next couple of hours. No clue that for those two hours, her hurt was just growing by the minute. And you know how that is. When, When somebody else has hurt you and you're thinking, I know that you know you hurt my feelings. And every minute that passes that you don't come back and apologize just adds another level of hurt. And I have no idea for the next two hours, I have badly hurt my wife's feelings. The next time I bump into her, I was keenly aware that I'd hurt her feelings. And that's one of the things I love about Jackie is she is very straightforward. So you don't have to wonder if she's happy or sad or whatever or mad. So I suddenly was very aware that I had hurt her feelings. And as we sort of bumped into each other in the kitchen and I asked her about something and saw that look in her eyes that in a loving Christian way kind of said, you could just drop dead right now and it would be okay. It was one of those moments, and I'm not faulting her for that because I'm the one who had hurt her. I just wasn't aware of it. And as I'm pouring my Kool-Aid or whatever in the moment, and I'm like, whoa, that didn't sound right. I said, what's the matter? And she's like, you're the matter. You're what you said. And I'm thinking, what did I say? What did I say? I usually have got a pretty good memory about when I've screwed up. And, I, and then she told me what I had said. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You just didn't understand what I was saying. Can I just tell you, that didn't help a little bit. (laughs) And so I did what every good husband would do. I began to explain what I meant. I would have been better off if I had cursed her in that moment. That was, she didn't need an explanation. What I said, though my intentions truly were not bad, what I said was very hurtful to her. And as badly as I wanted to set it all straight by explaining myself away, there was only one thing that would make that right. And that was for me to repent and to ask for forgiveness. Now, you're not going to love me or respect me anymore for admitting this, but that was the last thing I wanted to do in that moment. Because I wanted to be right. 
Because I knew I wasn't wrong in my mind. I hadn't done anything wrong. And I wanted to prove that I hadn't done anything wrong. And the more I tried to explain, the deeper in the quicksand I got. And it's, it's funny because I'm preparing to preach the sermon already at that point. And it's like the Holy Spirit goes, so how serious are you about this stuff? Or do you just preach it? And at that point I realized, idiot. Do what you preach. Do what you teach. Whether you meant to or not, you just hurt your wife. And you've continued to hurt her by just trying to defend it. Just repent. Ask for forgiveness. And the moment I did, you want to guess what happened? The night turned. And the week turned. Over repenting. Now, it didn't... Sometimes that feels good to do, and other times it doesn't. I'm going to confess, that didn't feel good in that moment. Here I am, five or six days removed from that, and I still want to explain myself. I'm not going to. I am totally done with that. Rest assured. Repentance is key. And being willing to forgive. Even though you don't want to forgive, Jesus said, as often as it happens. If there's repentance, even when they don't really deserve it, you give it. And here's why. We close with Colossians 3.13. Paul said, bear with each other. That's a great instruction for us in families, isn't it? Bear with each other. You're going to need to bear with each other. Maybe when I come home today, bear with me. Bear with each other and forgive each other. If someone does wrong to you, forgive that person because the Lord forgave you. I'll ask you one final question as we close. Did you deserve it when God forgave you? I didn't deserve it when he forgave me either. And so we can't wait until they deserve our forgiveness to give it. We just freely give it as we freely received it. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? God, we give you thanks that you teach us how to do relationships well. And we don't do this very well. We need your help. We need your help to deal with our own stuff. We need your help to speak truth into other people's lives when it's easier to stay silent and we need your help to forgive and to ask forgiveness when we've blown it or when we've been hurt. Would you give us the grace to live this out? I want to ask you right now to just give the Holy Spirit a moment to speak into your life. It may be that He's bringing to mind an issue where you haven't yet confessed and repented. It may be that He's bringing to mind a person in a situation that you need to speak truth to and confront. He may be bringing to mind a situation where you need to go and ask forgiveness. Or maybe where you need to give forgiveness. Would you just be still in the presence of the, of, of the Lord and let Him speak? And you, would you respond to what He says? Father, we want to follow you more faithfully. And we thank you, Jesus, for your example and for your instruction. And we pray that you would give us the grace and the ability to follow in in the pattern that you've set. And we commit ourselves to that, giving you thanks for the forgiveness that you provide. And we pray it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.